Hey everyone, this is the Nips and Sips podcast. We've got a special episode today as uh, Brandon and I are uh, here together. Uh, we'll talk more about that later, but we got a special guest today, Steve Kinney, if I'm saying that right. Did I get that right? Yes. You got uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, why you shouldn't specialize or go into specialization, uh, which is kind of interesting coming from three of us who are deep into specializations, as we would say. Uh, and then we'll kind of go into a couple other things. But uh, yeah, how's it going, everyone? Everything's going great, man. Uh, Steve, thank you for taking the time out of your busy life with work and family to do the show with us. I see he's repping his Regis University uh, OMP t-shirt. So way to represent here. Jeremy and I got the green light to, um, to do some mentorship for Jeremy's program. So he's up in my office. That's why we're here together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's home turf, so he has to drink some whiskey. So that's what he's, uh, he's drinking check today. Out the, check out the glass in, in true Brandon fashion. Vertebra. Vertebra. So, so um, pull like this. You know, what, what kind of manipulate, like hold? Do I do a UPA on you this? Or, do whatever your heart oh, desires. Man. But uh, I do, before we get into drinks, I want to um, introduce our awesome host here. I mean, I met Steve in our fellowship program. He's from Jersey, lives in Indiana now. Um, Bright mind here, kind of has worked in a lot of unique settings, and I'll let him talk about that in a little bit. Um, He's now in Indiana, also doing a lot on the advocacy side for the state and for the profession, which I think is awesome. I've had the pleasure to see Steve grow um, over the past couple years. Uh, from when we first started um, Regis and kind of how he's got more involved in things like that. So, Steve, uh, I'm going to pass it off to you. You know, give us a little background where you went to undergrad and PT school and kind of what's been your track. And then we'll do, um, I guess, a drink introduction and then we'll get into the, the nitty gritty. All right. Thanks a lot, Brandon. Uh, it's been, yeah, and obviously, as Brandon said, I've known him for a while through the fellowship program, and he's been a, a great person to work with through the fellowship program, and he's, uh, his clinical skills, um, awesome. It's great, great to learn from you. Thank you. Uh, but uh, what I would say is uh, my career path has kind of been uh, a little interesting when I, I always knew I had an interest kind of in everything in PT. So there is not a lot of things that kind of like scared me too much with maybe the one exception I really don't want to do like internal pelvic floor stuff but uh, uh, I would say beyond that I started off working in a brain injury unit uh, in New Jersey at JFK Johnson which is um, one it was a model program for TBI so I had some really interesting experiences there to start my career where we're working even with like patients with disorders of conscious uh, disorders of consciousness and uh, some pretty severe cases like that, multi-trauma. And I think that kind of built a base for me to kind of build off uh, the rest of my career. I I worked uh, in acute care basically uh, throughout the years, um, kind of more as like a a part-time thing, uh, generally speaking. Uh, I've worked in inpatient, a general inpatient rehab, and then also orthopedic physical therapy uh, for probably much of the last uh, like six or seven years. And my, when I've been doing outpatient physical therapy, it's a lot of it's been uh, in an orthopedic setting, obviously, but I've been fortunate to work with some pretty big hospital systems where I'm working also with neuro patients, vestibular patients. Um, And then I've also had to do a lot of rural health, probably increasingly in the last like uh, five years as well, which with rural health, you kind of have to know a little bit of everything because people has come through your door and they just 
they need a physical therapist and there's not really many options to treat stuff except you there. So if you don't know it, you have to kind of figure it out, which I think is awesome. And I think now knowing my kind of career path a little bit, I, I think being able to treat those types of populations where you have to go a little bit of everything is good. Or I really like those complicated patients who come through where it's like, well, they got like four different things involved. And I'm like, Hey, you know what? Yeah. You got a vestibular issue. Yeah. You got a uh, uh, cardiac issue and you have an orthopedic issue. I'm the person who can kind of tackle those different three things. And I, I like that challenge. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's going to be the, the crux of our show. So before we get into the meat and potatoes, uh, what are you drinking today? Well, let's do the drinking. Uh- a little earlier today, but it's okay. It's all good. Yeah. Um, I'm having a Madras, which is a orange, cranberry, and spice mead, which we were talking about before. Uh, mead is like a halfway between a beer and a uh, and wine, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So I didn't know what a mead was, and you explained it to me. Uh, what is it made with beer typically, and versus, uh, what a mead is, just so everyone gets a little background on that. So I think beer is a little bit when you have like the yeast and the sugar and there's, I guess, heating during that fermentation process where mead is kind of made a little bit more like a wine, but it's instead of sugar being given to the yeast, I think it's honey. So I think that's honey is the characteristic of a mead. Awesome. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. This one is very good. Very nice. And you got, you seems you got a nice size bottle there for yeah. today's episode. So it's going to be a good one. Uh, Jay, what, what you got? Oh, sorry, uh, yeah, for something? any of our, uh, listeners and those sort of things who are in New Jersey or close to it, Armageddon Brewery, I believe in the, I forget what town is in, kind of by um, by Flying Fish, which is Summerdale, I think, is a just a mead brewery. So if you just want to test out meads, uh, actually craft made, uh, it's there for you. But um, one question before I get in my drink, Steve, was that JFK in New Brunswick? All right. Uh, that was, uh, no, it was uh, before that became part of that hospital system. It was in Edison, actually. Okay. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was born at that hospital, so. Was, oh, really? All right, yeah, awesome. So that came to mind. I was like, yeah, got talked about that. But um, I am I am drinking what my main man hooked me up with, which is what Noble Oak. Noble Oak, yeah. So it was left in the, in the cabinet yeah. in the office. Delicious. I do like, you know, whiskey. I'm more Irish whiskey and bourbon is my go-to. I'm not as big into scotch, but uh, this is a, this is in Jeremy Boyd scale. Uh, Let me, let me get a good sip. That's good. That's refreshing. Not too much bite. Just right. I'm going to give it a Eight flat, eight? eight flat. That's smooth. I'm gonna be. Like, I was like, oh man, I haven't just sipped on. You this know what? Today would have been a great day if I remember if my brain was working to bring in the booker you got me, and we could have cracked that baby open. Oh, I messed up. Yeah, right. yeah we know this. So, okay. sorry. All right, and I'm drinking the same thing, Noble Oak. Uh, we finished off the bottle here with the pour, so um, after this, that will be done. So, I guess moving on, uh, Steve, we're kind of, I guess, where'd you go to school, you know, what, and then kind of what set you along those paths that you talked about kind of in the opening-ish of the show, and then, you know, why did you end up, you've worked in all these different settings, what made you go through um, fellowship, and you did a residency, correct? I did not do residency. Oh, you did not, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, so if you could kind of, you know, explain, I guess, from uh, DPT school, you where you went, and then how you went to each um, setting you did, 
and then how that's led you to now because it's going to definitely lead to the topic of the conversation of why we shouldn't always specialize in, in PT. Yeah, well, uh, so actually, I went to physical therapy school at Columbia University in New York. And uh, one of the things they actually force you to do in your third year is they force you to kind of specialization track. And I kind of was deciding between ortho and neuro, and both of them seemed pretty interesting to me. Um, And actually, weirdly enough, I actually took the neuro track at that point in time. Mm. And uh, I think that was, I guess, helpful in terms of me going into my first job uh, where I worked predominantly in a neuro type setting. But in, uh, after that, as I got more into orthopedics, uh, when I was initially exposed to physical therapy, before I even had gone to uh, grad school and I was an undergrad and I was getting treated, I think one of my passions was it was cool to see how good physical therapists treated me and how there were some uh, people who provided treatments who I would not like to replicate their care. So I think that also made orthopedic physical therapy an interest of mine because sometimes it's as a skilled clinicians can get immediate results and can do amazing things for their patients. So I think that's, I always wanted to keep my, my as hand in all of these different fields. And I think that's where uh, during my career path, I kind of saw that. And as I did progressively more and more orthopedics, I saw, uh, a chance to develop more expertise and to grow professionally going through a fellowship program and uh, getting my, I sat for the orthopedic certified specialist exam. Uh, so I didn't get residency. So I'm only half as cool as you two. And uh, <laughs> How about that? But yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think one of the main reasons that realistically why I, I think a residency would have been uh, a great experience for me. It just didn't happen because I just financially didn't think I could, take on two of those types of investments. I can only really do one. Well, you know, if you did a residency, would that have faltered or limited the growth that you've been on in your career? Because if you would have specialized, would you then have dabbled in all the different things you did dabble in that has led you to this point, kind of like that butterfly effect. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that also kind of played into it a little bit too, because I know I like moving around and doing all these different things. So it, it probably would have pigeonholed me, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that was part, part of the benefit too, because there's still things I do like learning about now. And I've had some recent exposure to stuff on wound care, and I'm not a wound care therapist right now. I've changed like two wounds in my life, and I'm lucky at one of the locations I work at infrequently. Sometimes they're willing to actually show me how to do that. Uh, but, and then uh, actually an area that I'm getting more into, and again, kind of limited, would be like kind of pelvic floor type physical therapy. Mm-hmm. I don't love doing it. I'm not going to do anything internal. But when you're in a rural setting and someone has incontinence, the next person's like 45 minutes away, you have to at least be able to do some basic or external stuff because then the problem just doesn't get fixed. And mm-hmm. I might not be the person to fully solve it, but I can get them on the right path, hopefully. Yeah. So what's the, I guess, the laws or the, the scope of practice in Indiana for a male PT to do that? Can you do it to another male or, or no, you can't, and you're just working solely external, but maybe assessing the lumbar spine and maybe the pelvic and hip region? I would say like you can, you can access the pelvic floor muscles uh, externally. Mm-hmm. And it's, if you think about it, like someone comes in with back pain, I might, let's say have like for 
20 tricks or something like that. For someone who comes in with pelvic floor issues, I maybe got like four or five tricks yeah. for that. Uh, so I, I can uh, kind of externally access all the pelvic floor muscles. Um, sometimes I don't need to even do a targeted intervention to that area. A lot of times I have someone who has pelvic floor issues. I'm like, look, we're going to do a lot of uh, what's commonly referred to as core stability training. I like kind of like motor control or neuromotor re-ed. Uh, and I will kind of work on kind of that stuff you would with a lot of our patients that you have with low back pain and kind of start there. And if they need further stuff, I'll kind of go for, I'll do the more targeted approach or kind of refer them out to the appropriate specialist. And I realize that the referrals are going to have limited effect just because it's such a far drive yeah. for people who might not even have enough gas money to drive the five or 10 minutes to my clinic. Yeah. Wow. How long have you been in this setting, this type of setting for current, the current setting? That you've been? I've been, it's kind of off and on. Uh, another thing that's kind of contributed to my weird career arc is I've been a, a float therapist for many years. So there's been like I'll cover at a clinic, like for maternity leaves or for extended stays. Sometimes it's just vacations. Sometimes I'll just be like, it'll be a one and done type thing. But you see a lot of volume of patients and you see a lot of the good and bad in physical therapy. And there's plenty of, so many of my exercises I've poached from other people, which I think I'm very lucky to do. I'm like, oh man, that's a really cool exercise. Uh, and I might not like anything else that that therapist does, but uh, that there's could be like one exercise I steal from or one technique that I steal from them. Yes, um, yeah. yeah. And that means that that probably goes for my coworkers too. There's, I try to be very cognizant of trying not to blow up entire programs, but trying to like tweak things a little bit and hopefully finding something where my next, uh, where my coworkers could be like, Oh, I like that one tweak you do. And this is something we could use effectively for this patient. Yeah. Manage it, yeah. So, right, we're gonna ask. No, I think uh, a good example of someone like you. I I didn't watch the whole thing, but uh, on Netflix there was this right at the start of the pandemic. There's some sort of you know docu series on like viruses and those sort of things, and they discussed like they followed this um, primary practitioner who has to legitimately, it's small rural town, I forget where it was, can't really remember much, but she has to treat everything from fractures, sprains, to neurological things, to delivering babies and those sort of things. Um, so, you know, when, when I started hearing you talk about that, Steve, I thought, I thought that was you. Um, and I think that's super cool. I think you bring up a good point. You brought up a thing of expertise, and I think a lot of that's confused with uh, as you become an expert, you become more specialized. And with what you're saying, you're becoming an expert and not you're still being able to dabble into a lot of these things and still give effective care. So I think that's a really cool point to get to drive home to our audience and those sort of things. You don't have to go down one rabbit hole in order to become an expert. You can you know, be very good at a couple different realms there. Yeah. So, so with that, kind of some follow-up questions for you and the audience and um, in no particular order here, but we, you and I know this, we had this conversation, a great bunny trail in fellowship where Cam and uh, you know, the, the mass knowledge he has and the, the Wally veteran that he is um, kind of talked about. Uh, I, I hope you were at this one. Cause I know you missed one with because uh, of a wedding. Yes. Shit, you might actually not even met this weekend, but we said, <laughs> I think about it. We talked about how uh, you know, 
become an expert, we shouldn't specialize. And by specializing um, and, and limiting yourself, and we really mean specialization like one joint, right? Um, you know, specializing in the shoulder or specializing in ACLs or treatment of the knee, uh, you, you miss like the full picture because the shoulder, you know, is hinged off the, the T-spine, the C-spine, the shoulder girdle, all these muscles, even core um, or core control, rotational control, things like that. So if you're just a shoulder specialist, um, are you missing all these other things that are part of the bigger picture and therefore not as an effective or as effective of a uh, treating clinician now that you've done that? And then with your career arc, like you were saying, how do you think that's kind of really been to your advantage? And then another kind of follow-up question with that, you went through OCS and then into fellowship um, and you're about to complete that. How has this unique specialty of fellowship training really helped you become more of an expert and not necessarily specialized. So uh, there's a lot there I just threw out. I can repeat what I just said, but he needed a drink. Yeah, to clearly, process yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take one too. Um, can, and again, no, no particular order. How does that all kind of play in? Because, you know, people think you do OCSs or, or residencies and fellowships to specialize, but then you realize you know, you, you're able to take that step back and see how it applies to different realms. So I'll get to that in a little bit. I'll, I'll shut up and let you talk. Okay. So I'm probably going to miss some of the questions, but right. the first one I'm going to start off with is the joint or region specific specialization. Mm. Uh, I was not there at that one, uh, but I actually weirdly enough, we had actually that same conversation next year without you. Okay. Cause I remember uh, talking to, uh, to Pam, Pam in our uh, fellowship class about that. Uh. And I kind of made my thoughts known on that. And she actually said, because she, she works at Intermountain Health where yeah. they have tons and tons of data on outcomes. Yeah. And she said she pretty convincingly saw that those who specialized tend to have worse outcomes. Mm. And they, I, one of the questions, follow-up questions was like, well, is it because they're seeing the hardest patients? And she's like, well, there's, there's different ways we controlled for that. And she's like, the specialist still did worse. Um, so I think that if you look at per, a person at one joint or one part of the body, you're missing other stuff. And I think we need to just generally, there's, there's so much good information out there. If, if your information is only limited to one joint, that's great, but you're going to need to know something else about that body at some point in time. And that includes knowing other joints. It's going to know, um, different types of maybe you're gonna to have to know more about the like if you treat the back you have to know about the cardiovascular system what if someone has a a triple a or something like that mm -hmm. uh if you're dealing with with headaches or the neck you have to have a really strong neuro game you have to be able to do cranial nerve exam you have to be able to um differentiate between sometimes so other severe neurological processes that could be going on so i think we have to meld a lot of those skills uh and obviously i think the data that she kind of told me is unpublished which always kind of stinks for listeners too but um anecdotally I, I, that's that's what i've seen and i've seen the people who do specialize like people who like specialize in the back um i think it would benefit or behoove them to be able to see other uh different areas too as well mm -hmm. yeah, and from what i've seen personally when i follow people yeah, I think that brings into, you know, just one topic we've talked about a lot is regional interdependence. How does, you know, one or two joints uh, affect something above or below? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just from 
looking at, I think that's a simple example, mm -hmm. let alone some of the more complex things that you said, which I don't think are that complex if you're aware of it and begin to hone it and practice it. They should be more routine than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually, I, I work with a lot of occupational therapists uh, and uh, at some of our facilities, they tend to get a lot of like the shoulders, elbows, hands, which is a little bit bums me out a little bit because I like to see them a little bit more just, you know, because I, I like that variety in case you yeah. guys haven't figured that out. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I tell them it's, um, I've talked with a couple OTs about it. I'm like, I don't understand how you can, some OTs won't treat the neck or the thoracic spine at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't understand how you would be able to treat a region like the shoulder if you can't treat those areas yeah, because I, I just, I don't understand it. And it might be my practice patterns, but you need to have options when treating patients. And if you only have a limited number of options, there's just less good that you could do period for them. You need to be able to branch out and do other things. I would, I would think. Yeah. Agreed. Well um, said. Then from a, just another kind of side point is especially those who specialize that you're going to get eventually to this point of like, where I've seen it all sort of thing and probably start repeating same treatments. Uh, I'm the expert, I'm the specialist in the area. And you miss out on that creativity side of like, sometimes a lot of times I'm working with someone, I'm like, all right, I'm treating their primary issue. They've had a chronic issue elsewhere. I'm like, all right, let's focus on your, on your first thing. And then as we're working with things, they'll start to report, hey, you know what? You know, since we've been working on my shoulder or my neck, my elbow no longer hurts or those sort of things. So you're missing out on those components if you're kind of keeping yourself into like one, one special region or something of that nature. So mm -hmm. I feel like you're missing a lot of the experimentation side of things and, you know, can definitely yeah. holding yourself back. Yeah. Experimentation side and, and really type two reasoning that, you know, clinically reasoning through things instead of always defaulting to that type one reasoning, which is your pattern recognition, which is something, you know, we've just talked about today with your mentoring, um, you know, mentoring with you today. And, you know, obviously you need type one reasoning. You need that pattern recognition. It needs to be a part of your thought process and your clinical decision-making, but that can't be the only thing that you, you know, reach back into and your bag of tricks is just that because you're going to miss something. You're going to get fooled. You're going to overlook something just by always trying to pattern recognize. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Uh, you need to, yeah, I think, yeah, pulling all that variety definitely is, is, is vital for people. I think like a good example of that might be like you take something like a total knee replacement. Everyone's well, we'll say a lot of people have seen a total knee replacement and there's a lot of people who are like, oh man, total knee replacements are boring. You can't do this or that. Um, there's, for something as what appears as mundane as that, there's a lot of degrees of individualization that you can do. Yes, you have to get the range of motion. Yes, you have to get them kind of functional mobility training, but there's little tweaks and variety that you can do to get people better. And I kind of think about it like cooking. Um, and sometimes it's, you're, you're still making lasagna but maybe you're throwing like a little bit of different type like you use a different type of tomato or you like use a little bit of pinch of this or a pinch of that and those pinches can make a very big difference on kind of that that end result or that uh that yeah. recipe that you have at the end if you don't have enough salt on stuff it might not taste as good it's a difference between like a good dish and a great dish yeah all of a sudden that i think that ingredient is a ingredient um analogy is always a great one when it comes to um, you know, treating and, and honing in the cl clinical decision-making and not making things, uh, 
no pun intended here, like cookie cutter, you know, speaking mm-hmm. of recipes and stuff, you want, you want to be able to add some, add some variety. But uh, Steve, with that, uh, just to, to circle back, you know, you did your OCS, you have this, this unique arc here that I don't think a lot of therapists really get to. Um, what made you go into the fellowship program? And then how have you been able to, over the past, what, two years um, or so, um, take what you've learned, probably take a step back and see how it fits into maybe a bigger picture and across different realms. And we'll dive more into that uh, later because I know we've had some conversations about that as well. So I think one of the, the big things is I wanted to, I think the, the feedback, uh, the, the, the clinical growth that you get with um, like kind of like a targeted residency or fellowship program is that's going to kind of put your feet to the fire a little bit more than uh, kind of just doing stuff in clinic and be like, I think I did a good job. And I like to think that I'm pretty critical of myself and I tend to try and unbiased uh, evaluate myself, but I'm evaluating myself. There's going to be a level of bias. So I think the fellowship process has been helpful in that uh, capacity for me. I think that's part of the, what drew me into it. Um, I think particularly drew me in the Regis too. It wasn't saying we're going to make, we're going to have you follow this book and pamphlet of what you need to do with all of your patients. Cause if that's what was going to happen, I yeah. feel like I would have lost a lot of the things that make me an effective therapist. And I think the Regis program kind of is, is a self-reflective program that doesn't make you treat a certain way. And I think that was really what appealed to me in that. Cause I don't think I would have gotten into it otherwise. And Joe Byland, uh, who was uh, one of my mentors at Mount Side Hospital, uh, now whatever 15 letter name that hospital is. Yeah, uh, he's my mentor as well. So we share a mutual one. <laughs> I think it's like Hackensack Meridian Health, something, something, Mountainside yeah. Campus or yeah. something. Yeah. But uh, it is, uh, I think that's kind of what drove me in there. And I, I knew that I had a lot of, I have a skill set. And it, to be honest, I want, I wanted there to be kind of a, a structured way to, for me to show my level of expertise. And I think that's, that's a problem that we have in our profession is there's, there's some ways to show expertise. And traditionally the way to do that is either residency or fellowship, um, getting, becoming board certified or getting that fellowship. But there's a struggle in our profession to, for some to show expertise because like, let's go, let's say you go into, um, cardiopulm, there's not a lot of cardiopulm residency programs. There's no fellowship programs that exist for you. And while I understand the push to require residency after DPT school, I don't think it's a, right now it's not a viable option due to the lack of availability, the finances in it. And that's one of the things that we need to find ways to be able to find people who are skilled and expertise. And right now it's challenging because it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, how has, how have you been able to use manual therapy in your other settings? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about, and uh, that was a point for at least that came up on my side of things in the AM conference. You know, we keep doing these manual therapy things, manips, manips, whatever, uh, pain science, you know, n- name that on the list. But then it's like, take a step back and, and you alluded to it earlier. 
what about that cardiopulmonary patient who had open heart surgery and is, is stuck, you know, in kind of that kyphotic flex position, they need to be able to open up. They can benefit from manual therapy. Mm -hmm. What about that spinal cord injury who needs neurodynamic um, or even, uh, you know, spinal mobilizations to kind of open things up and help facilitate healing that if you're in those settings, you have that tunnel vision of, Oh, why would I do manual therapy on this patient? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how have you been able to bring that together or when, the, when, when was that aha moment of, um, I guess during fellowship, maybe it was before fellowship. Oh, I can use manual therapy for these unique populations that you see. Mm -hmm. I would say, it started like as a, even before PT school, actually, into a degree. Okay. I, I was fortunate where with my, uh, I guess, the treatment by some of the physical therapists that I had. And also I had an excellent kind of like populations health class when I was an exercise, uh, when I was a health and exercise science major at the College of New Jersey. And those things kind of made me start thinking, oh, there are some great things that we can do. So we're going through stuff kind of traditionally speaking. And I'm like, okay, we're, so we're seeing patients in the hospital. And I started off as a physical therapy aide working in outpatient and also the inpatient setting. I was like, why are we using any of this population health stuff for the people who are inpatients? Mm -hmm. Why are, I know I was able to get a rapid uh, improvement with some of the different techniques that I saw in an outpatient setting. Why aren't we doing these things? So I kind of knew that it was possible. Um, and then as I kind of had been going through over the years, I, you try stuff out and stuff doesn't work and stuff, stuff does. And it's taken me a while um, with some things more than others to figure out how it meshes together. I think in terms of applying some of like the population health stuff, I've gotten a lot better in that in the last couple of years. The manual therapy, I probably, I had pretty strong uh, I had a lot of continuing ed and manual therapy early on in my career. So then it was able easier for me to start using some of the manual therapy for like my patients with traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, I started working um, when I was working in the acute care setting where you have people who are post cabbage and I'm not saying you have to do manual therapy with everyone post cabbage, but for people who are severely limited by pain, uh, dyspnea, those types of things, a well-timed well or well-placed manual therapy technique isn't going to really take too much of your time up, and it can also yield much better outcomes for the patient, and that's what we should be focused on in that setting, not necessarily just seeing as many patients as humanly possible. We should be focused on adding value to their care in that setting. So, um, I mean, other areas that you could include that manual therapy in, uh, talk about like uh, like we talked about the neurological setting uh, with our, our geriatric patients using well-placed uh, manual therapy to help out even something like balance. If you don't have mobility in different areas, then you're not going to be able to, uh, you might have to make up for that with stability somewhere else and that can impair your balance. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways you can kind of use it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh to kind of go off that I, I had some two two unique experiences um i guess really two two individuals i was lucky to uh have in my path one was craig fox who you know and he's um uh what's the do you know what's the company he's with now neuro rehab institute or i forget the name of the actual are they all i thought they were all consolidated under eim now oh is it is it now that i thought that i thought they still had their little sub umbrella underneath eim but I know Kineticor and like ISPI consolidated yeah. under them. So I don't, I figured they did, but I don't know for sure. 
Anyway, he, he's the lead there. But when I met him, he was at a University of Florida. And, and um, my, I had a 12-week rotation of, of uh, neuro-PT, which, uh, you know, I, I wanted to do orthopedics and sports and stuff like that. But uh, I had a great experience with him. And he was like, you know, just because they're neuro doesn't mean they don't have orthopedic issues. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean they you can't do exercises with them. Like, and, you know, that was the first time I really kind of heard that and was just like, wow, you're right. And mm-hmm. he, he made it much more enjoyable for me because now I was able to apply some ortho in there and kind of get my little fix there, but also understand the, the neuro side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember doing some manual therapy on patients with uh, Parkinson's, you know, rigid T-spines, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, progressed far enough where they're lacking a lot of motion. Hey, do some manual therapy now. Let's do some motor control stuff and a lot of repetitions. Um, at that time I was very, very, very big into like exercises. So, you know, we had some spinal cord injuries and some post-stroke patients. He's like, you can do anything you want with them. They need more reps than the average person. Um, so just kind of hearing that was just like, you know, kind of shed things in a different light where you can just because it's called neuro PT or cardiopalm PT or whatever, doesn't mean it just has to focus on those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one was during my residency with Bill Egan, and we were talking about this, uh, we were going over the neck and we went over uh, vestibular and uh, he had mentioned he, he wanted to get better at vestibular. So we took a vestibular course and he's like, yeah, a lot of it was um, aside from like some of the BPPV stuff and things like that and habituation, it was like, it was a neck screening. Um, and I've realized treating now, you know, years later and reflecting in the growth, like a lot of the vestibular patients I've come across have benefited so much from mobilizations or manipulations uh, to that upper C-spine or C-spine in general, and then combine with, you know, some other things as well. But um, a lot of them tend to come chronically, you know, they've been elsewhere and that seemed to be the missing piece. You know, they've been dealing with X, Y, and Z for six months, a year, five years, and then you do some manual therapy and it's like, wow, you know, things really open up. So just really having that clinical decision-making to Mm. try new things. And as you've been doing really since undergrad, pushing that envelope, challenging the system, we we need more PTs like that. Mm -hmm. Well, and actually one of the questions I have for you guys too is when you're talking about this and like uh, the mentors that you've had over the years, it's, they challenge you to use an orthopedic manual therapy approach. And that's what uh, I know we talked about in the Regis program. And really how much of that is just, it's the, that patient response model or that test retest model is mm-hmm. a, a clinical decision, decision-making approach that is usually a lot more in orthopedics, sadly not as much as it should be, I think. Mm-hmm. But why aren't we using that in other settings with different mm-hmm. patient populations? And you just kind of talked about how that approach and how um, kind of on a larger clinical decision-making scale, how that can affect the patients that we see and how we can maximize our outcomes by communicating across these silos basically across uh across our field i think yeah i mean going back to one of our previous episodes where brandon was making the argument of like manual therapy is not it's always labeled non-specific effects uh brandon while you know, it's multi yeah well, it was a, a podcast or the course we had anyway regardless so it's, it's yeah, both. Podcast, maybe yeah, both, both. Yeah, multi-specific effects. Um, so to multiple regions, to multiple systems, uh, like let's say manual therapy. All right, there is a calming effect to it. So can that alter people's BP or heart rate or can we anxiety or anxiety? 
uh, can it alter things in the nervous system as well? Uh, we've seen it, uh, you know, I talked to Brandon about this. He brought this to light for me at one point of, um, you know, I've had manual therapy and he's had manual therapy, alter reflexes. So that's a neurological response. Uh, can we you, not, it doesn't have to purely be manual therapy. I'm just using these examples, but, um, you know, looking at it from, it can affect multiple systems and we should be using it in multiple settings. And I think like students, um, I know in my experience that you guys had similar experiences. I had my outpatient orthopedic experience under COMT, certified orthopedic male therapist. He was OCS, a little more older school, super smart guy, Terry Andrews. And I learned a ton from him and then I went inpatient and I could have just kept quiet, you know, just treated, you know, the strokes, the cabbages and all that. But there was a time and a place, you know, patient couldn't get his hip up for like stairs or something. I was just like, well, if we just did some hip mobilizations, and I was, I had a good enough CI, Wendy Jensen, who was just like, you know, why don't you try it? Um, so don't be discouraged even at the student level or anything like that. Just be like, hey, why don't we try something outside the box? Because even as your CIs, you get tunnel vision. You've been doing this for years, been doing this for years. Suggest some of these other system approaches and you can, you can definitely help some of these people out. But uh, yeah, sorry, I went on a tangent there. No, it's time to drink. Uh, yeah, I think Steve, uh, you brought up a good point and, you know, audience um, replay this because that test, utilizing test retest, which really comes from Maitland, right? When we break it down and it should be used in orthopedics and it's probably not used in, in musculoskeletal orthopedic settings enough. So we know it's probably not being used in other settings and it really should. And, and that needs to be taught. I don't know, whatever level, continuing education courses, uh, residency levels, entry level PT between courses like that needs to find its way to trickle down. Um, and hopefully this, this podcast can, you know, reach, you know, a few hundred people. Um, and hopefully will resonate with some people and they'll start trying to, bring that concept over into whatever setting that they're in. Yeah. And I mean, he, sometimes it's, it's, it's harder to get people like when you're have someone with a lot of severe neuro deficits, you might not be able to do a manual therapy technique or really any type of intervention and be like, Oh, you went from a max assist transfer to the walking independent. Like, yeah. It's not going to happen. As well. yeah, of course. But what you do is as you also get more skilled with it, you get appropriate tests that you assess on people. And mm. yeah, there are some times where, uh, the patient response model, like getting results on that is not a huge deal. If someone's like max assist and we do a hundred transfers to that person and they don't change at all, but next day they're doing a little bit better. It's yeah. Maybe that test retest didn't do anything from that session, but they just needed repeats. They needed repetitions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also something I've kind of learned over my career too. I like that model. There's limitations. We know those limitations, but on the whole, that model can really help our patients out. Yeah, And I want to actually say something uh, to you, Jeremy, because you mentioned about like manual therapy of like blood pressure and vitals, anxiety, all those different types of things. There's good research for all that stuff. And I've definitely like with someone who's high blood pressure, who had a uh, high blood pressure. And I was like, ah, they're kind of on the borderline. I probably shouldn't see them. I do some manual therapy, get their blood pressure down. I'm like, okay, now I can start mobilizing this patient cautiously, monitor their vitals, kind of see how they're doing. And in the hospital, mobilizing someone versus not mobilizing someone, it's 
like that, you can avoid a serious medical complication like PEs, pneumonia, that kind of stuff mm. by mobilizing people. So that's, that's not an insignificant effect. Yeah, absolutely. And probably something that's not going to show up in the research too often. No. Uh, you know, a lot of research is confined of, you know, excluding people with a lot of these comorbidities or age uh, re restrictions. Um, and even, even in school, we learn manual therapies contraindicated for probably half the stuff that we utilize it for or it should be utilized for. So it really comes down to, as you said before, that clinical decision making, that thought process uh, of being able to reason through something. Can I ask you guys a question too? Because this is something I've been kind of yeah. playing with in my brain is like in the acute care setting, I think there is value we can demonstrate for patients, basically, if you just refer to this whole entire conversation that we had. But one of the challenges you run into is that patient you might see for a one-off visit, and it's hard trying to demonstrate value in that one-off visit. And yeah, maybe you could do like a Berg scale in the beginning and a Berg scale at the end, but let's be honest, from a time perspective, you're not going to have that option. Um, and I was kind of wanted to pick your brains on, th on things or outcomes or ways we could capture that from an orthopedist, uh, from orthopedic physical therapist viewpoint. I'm like, can we use something like the Grok, even though I know that that assessment really doesn't have like the best validity in the world? It's like, how would you guys try and capture the value of like a manual approach or really any type of clinical decision-making approach with a patient like that in acute care where you might only see them for one visit? Yeah, I think it, uh, I'm going to ask a follow-up question. Is what type of acute care we're we talking? Is it post-op acute care? Like I, I think it definitely right. values or, or varies depending on the complexity of that patient and what they're, they're in for. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think, I think really. And acute care, I feel like you're getting such a huge spectrum of that. You can go off a lot of things. I mean, I think whether it's a post-op, which would be more, or, you know, post-op, you know, musculoskeletal is obviously a more our realm, but I mean, yeah, it's it would be tough to quantify those things, but yeah, using like a G-Rod or maybe it's distance walks, or maybe it's something as simple as compliance. Most of our, let's face our acute care or for all our acute care therapists go out there and they're how many times they get rejected going from one room to the other. And maybe as a buy-in and maybe that gets enough for the patient to be like you know these people are out here to help me and maybe i won't be you know saying no to the next pt who comes in and those sort of things so something you can't really quantify but i think especially with that manual therapy approach which has probably a better buy-in or uh, mm -hmm. a bit better patient rapport than just hey go sit to stand for the next five minutes maybe that's something that we can quantify or you know, maybe we can do a post-discharge research on, you know, individuals who got a manual therapy approach versus didn't. I'm sure functionally they may have, you know, six months down the road looked the same, but how quickly did they get to that point or what, how satisfied were they at, you know, one month, three months and those sort of things. But go back and to Brandon's follow-up there. Um, how I would look at it, or again, it's a small niche. Um, people with uh, bed sores or tunneling and things like that from lack of movement, and maybe we're going into more subacute cares as well. It, you know, we we I think we should be mobilizing these or passive range of motion even, which clearly doesn't get done. Can we start there? Are we getting contractures? Too. Contractures is a, another great one. And again, maybe they're not that like Jeremy said that short time, but 
you know, if you're seeing it and then, you know, the guy behind you in the next shift is, is doing it, does that shorten length of stays? Are there less adverse effects? Are there less contractures? Are there less, um, uh, I'm totally blanking Cost. on that. Um, yeah, reduce reduced costs. Yeah. Um, what's the word I want? Tunneling when uh, bed sores and stuff. Yeah. yeah. What's the, what's the term for that? Right? No. Yeah. It's about like the depth of the wound. Yeah. Yeah. But what's the wound itself called? Is it? But, uh, right. You're talking about decubitus right. ulcer? Yeah. yeah, ulcers. Right. That's what I was talking about. Okay. Just ulcers in general. Yeah, um, it, it was escaping me, but I know I was naming the grades. I was yeah. going way <laughs> higher than I needed to go. Typical, typical me there. Um, but yeah, are, are we getting people with less of that stuff mm-hmm. from you know either like some type of passive range of motion or joint mobilization? Um, like he said, PEs, less less clots and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, from from mobilizing from early PT recipient you know, care wise. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think that's very hard to really try and get into research and then show actual change. I, I don't know. I'm not, yeah. I'm not the research guy to tell to, to talk to you about how that would go I think about. It would but, be yeah. like a cost effective study. Like I remember we looked at a comparison, my research in, in PT school is a comparison between sniffs and a day rehab. So mm-hmm. nothing changed besides a patient instead of sleeping over or is it driven in? Uh, that was pretty much rehab didn't change, but the overall cost of everything was significantly less than day rehab and the outcomes were exactly the same. So it's like, all right, this is for total knee replacements and maybe total hips as well. Um, mm-hmm. But if we're avoiding all these sort of things that, you know, whether it's tunneling or ulcers or, you know, peas and those sort of things, decreasing the cost of, or readmissions and those sort of things, you know, looking at that, you know, you know, can we do a cost study as well? Maybe versus purely, oh, their outcomes are better. You know, their wounds healed quicker, those sort of things. So those would be tough to quantify, but maybe overall cost of a patient or length of stay and that sort of stuff. It, it's tough. Cause even like, if you look at stuff like early mobilization, sometimes they don't show differences in some of those outcomes, yeah. even though like early mobilization is such a valuable thing. And then like you talk about like, there's some patients who, like I might go a whole day in acute care and never use manual therapy and that's fine. Yeah. But then there's some days I'll use it like four or five times. Um, and speaking to like getting people to engage in therapy a little bit more, like there was a, a guy who I wanted like, oh man, I want to write a case report on you so bad. Um, who, it was a guy who had uh, basically met, metastatic uh, cancer. Um, he was going on hospice and those are typically people, um, in the acute care set acute physical therapy care setting where they're like, okay, well, do we need to see this person? Are they appropriate? And it's like, they don't see a, a value that we can provide for that patient. And so I went into that room and I was like, oh, how are you doing? What's bothering you? How can I help you out? He's like, I don't know if you'd help me out with this, but he's like, I'm really constipated. It's like this, the drugs have really backed me up. And I know my little bit about um, trying to help people get, go to the bathroom a little bit more, talking about positioning with that, mobilizing, moving around, um, giving them different ways or different techniques to be able to do that. And am I the most knowledgeable in there? But no, but I have conservative interventions that someone can do that is dying that are important to him. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard to quantify something like that, even though I know I had an impact on him. It's just frustrating that I can't, I can't be demonstrate sure. that value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that'd be a great, great uh, case report because 
the the deeper I've gone in the research and and, and clinical um, expertise, right, uh, with um, residencies and fellowships and, and not presenting and stuff like that, I find more value probably nowadays um, in those case studies or case series uh, than those randomized control trials. Um, you know, I think you know, obviously, we're taught that, and, and this is. This seems to be a recurring theme on the show, and it's mm -hmm. not that we're poo-pooing the top, the grade one and, and twos of evidence, um, but you know those have a limitation mm -hmm. on it. And what if you have that patient um, who has metastatic cancer who can't go to the bathroom who responded to some type of mobilization or, or self-positioning? That's not going to be you're not going to find 150 patients like that that you can study and try and make it generalizable. Mm -hmm. No, that's a, a one-off patient that, you know, there may be five of those, you know, I'm just throwing out arbitrary numbers, but that, you know, somebody who reads it and they run into something similar, you know, whether it's a cancer patient or not, but something of the like, and they're able to now help this patient off of a case report that was written up. So I, I find more values in, in, in that because you, you gain insight to that reasoning of the, of the therapist, what they tried, what they didn't try and things mm -hmm. like that. So you know, it might be, might be beneficial. I know, I know you're very busy as it is, but you know, that might be a, a unique, um, you know, presentation or, uh, maybe, maybe it's not a write-up. Maybe just do another poster next year for AI out there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully it gets out a little bit with the podcast. Yeah. But, so, uh, <laughs> we'll promote it here. Yeah. And, uh, and another way, I guess not really quantify this or something, but I used to do inpatient rehab or I guess it was a sniff. Uh, when it worked, you know, I was going through my orthopedic resume, it was a way to pick up side money. Um, was never, I always kind of thought I sucked at it because, you know, it just wasn't, you know, most of the time I was reading orthopedics articles and stuff like that, but I would go in, uh, had the same approach I've always had, like whatever the patient needs right now, I'm gonna help them out with. Mm -hmm. I was not a productivity friendly therapist at times, but whatever. <laughs> Um, and something that always happened, I was, I was like, these guys must think I suck. I don't even know what to do with half these damn lines half the time, but I like cared. I would, you know, give them exercises to kind of help them ask the same question. What well, can I help you out with today? Sometimes I integrate manual therapy and almost every single time at the end of it, they're like, when are you coming back? I was just like, oh no, you're not, you're probably not going to see me ever again. <laughs> Uh, maybe once a month, they'd be like, oh, Jeremy, you want to work? I was like, ah, maybe, yeah, why not? Um, but it was always like, this is the best session. Not always, but a lot of times, like, this is the best session I've ever had um, here. And, like, you know, they come in, like, they're miserable about those sort of things. So that's something like, hey, you know you're doing the right job. Um, again, it didn't have to be manual therapy. It could just be like, all right, listening to the patient and doing something right there and then. But uh, that is maybe a, not a research way to quantify right. things and then you guys both said it, it comes down to caring mm -hmm. comes down to going the extra mile it having passion for what you do your job it's not always easy like there are some days where it's like yeah i'm gonna mail this one in but what if that guy needs you that day mm -hmm. and you're just being lazy um you know if you just take that extra 30 seconds to ask that patient you know that reward you get is going to just kind of make you want to do more in the future and then avoid burnout and avoid, you know, the monotony of it because you're actually going an extra mile and you're making a difference. And that's what keeps you going and avoids that, that burnout in our profession. So. 
on that day that I saw that hostage picture, it was, it was a rough day before that. And I saw him and I was just like, I don't care about what else happened this day. I feel good about this. This was, this was a good day. And I'm glad that I approached it the way I did and that kind of stuff. Cause you're right. That that's what gets us through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, uh, it probably would have been easy for you to be like, hey, I'm just going to mail this one in. I know that's not your personality, Steve, but, uh, Little story about Steve when I um, this had to be like the is this the first weekend we had together? I don't know, um, maybe first or second, maybe a second. And he's like, Yeah, I read um, the Guayette, or I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that dude's name right, <laughs> book every night before bed. I'm like, What the fuck? This dude's serious. Shit. Like, I'm like, I can't even read like past the page and I fall asleep with that. And this guy's reading it like 10 pages a night before, but I was like, this dude's legit. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he's definitely taking this to the next notch. And I was like, I, I kind of took it as a challenge for me in a good way, Steve, where I was like, I need to step my game up. Like th- this is what it's about. Um, you know, you got people here, you know, and he'd stay up till like two or three in the morning. And I was like at like one o'clock, 12 o'clock and going to bed. Um, and that was like a a wake-up call to me I was like I I need to step up my game and really you know not try and coast through this but really pull out um as much as I can and and I'll Mm -hmm. uh you know Steve definitely is part of it's part of that I I will never forget that when I heard you (laughs) awful book man so I remember I remember your response you're like Whoa, 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 you're just not reading the, the articles online? I was like, no, no, I'm reading the whole book. Like, I figured Josh Cleveland told me it was a good idea to, like, know the, the book front the cover. So I was like, I just read it front the cover. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought I was doing good with just the articles, but he took it the step step above, so. I, I feel like I still could get better at it. Uh, so it's I'm, it's, I'm still a work in progress, too, because I feel like you had a much better foundation than me coming in through your residency with the research. So I feel like I had like catching up to do. I was like, okay, I got to match you. I think you caught up. Did you ever finish the book? I did. Yes. How, how long did it take? I need to know. Cause I, I didn't get it. I still haven't gotten to that. <laughs> I would say it's like a year. It's great. I, I save it for times. I know I want to fall asleep. Yeah. So like, I'll read a few, like I, I read it for like 10 pages at a time, like airplanes. It was perfect. Cause I'd like read it. I'd fall asleep. I get uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, I need to fall asleep again. And I read like another like 10 or 20 pages. Or sometimes I would just stay up and I'd be like, I would knock out like 40 or 50. Yeah, I went back to, I'm just going to read these Note Boom articles by Note Boom and Cleveland. They, they seem to cover everything in that book that I need to know. Another thing that you, uh, funny story, um, that you love and I hate is uh, that Painful Yarns book. Remember that was brought up in class. We we're talking about analogies. I brought it up. I was like, I couldn't stand it, but that's like a good example. And you're like, I love that book. How can you not like it? I was like, dude, I fell asleep every time I read it. <laughs> you, you, the hammerhead shark didn't make you like roll over laughing. Honestly, I don't even know if I got to the hammerhead shark. I, <laughs> I remember this was in residency at my uh, Heidi Oja made, she was my like personal, like uh, advisor, I guess. Yeah. And she was brutal on me, probably because I didn't read the book. Um, but every time we'd meet, I was like, yeah, I'm still working on it. I can't get through it. Like, I was generally trying. I'd read, like, a page and fall asleep. And, or I'd reread the same page, like, ten times. Um, and I remember, like, they had a, an analogy. I, I should go back and read it now, seven years later, and see if I can just understand things better. Yeah. Um, they had an analogy about a car. 
And mm. I, I don't know. Like, I gave up at that point. I was like, what the fuck are they talking about? I had no idea. So I, I probably didn't get to the Hammerhead Shark. Maybe I'll, I'll start skipping through and, and see how yeah. I start with that. That's one of the few one? times in that's one of the few times in life where I've read something and I like I was uncontrollably laughing so hard like I couldn't breathe. Yeah. Jeremy, have you read it? No, I have not read it. I think based off of his advice, I turned I remember, him off to it. I went I went deep down the pain science route and everything like that, and I remember him mentioning how awful it was. So I was just like, oh, I'll just read like the Adrian Lowe pain books and stuff like that. And much friendlier. They have yeah. pictures, they yeah. pop up pictures, much more. I'm gonna have to pull it. I'm gonna have to get it now just yeah. just to either get a good laugh or. It's it's a little useful clinically, but it's not super useful. It's like good for just more story ideas. But I thought that was the funniest of the bunch. Like I have, I have like the explain pain books and all those other things. Mm. But uh, yeah, I thought, I don't know if that was funnier, but yeah, it's, it, uh, it's written in, uh, they're from Australia, right? The guys who wrote it. Yeah. So I think a lot of the analogies were like Australian specific and at, I don't know, what was that? 27, 26 or whatever. I don't know. Just like went over my head. I guess maybe I just wasn't cultivated or cultured enough. And I was like, what does this have to do with my guy having pain? I just missed the boat completely. But anyway, I'll have to go back and read it. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. All right. I guess enough of that. Um, I think anything else? Yes. Steve, anything else you want to share before we do our wrap-ups? No, I think we, we covered a lot there. So yeah, I think, yeah. uh, I'm, awesome. I'm personally happy with it. Awesome. Great. Yeah, great episode. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening in. And uh, if anybody had any questions or anything like that, comments or concerns or wants a you know, mentorship or anything like that, feel free to reach out to us at Nips and Sips on uh, all your major social media. I'm at The Decent Doctor and at Trifecta Therapeutics. Brandon's at Think Like a Fellow and at Pursue PT Now. What about you, Steve? You got anything? Uh, right now, no. I am... I, I am like social media. Well, actually, you can follow me on social media, I guess, if you want. I am active on Twitter-ish. Uh, so at uh, Stephen under slash Kenny uh, PT. There we go. Nice. All right, we'll find you. We'll start following you. Awesome. Um, I guess just last cl- closing up, we have um, just a little shameless plugs here. Uh, we have our um, manual therapy video series, over 120 uh, manual therapy videos, step-by-step instruction, including – uh, spine from you know OA uh, and AA all the way down to um, L5 S1 region. Um, uh, uh, I guess peripheral peripheral extremity mobilization and manipulations, and we've just recently added neurodynamics. Uh, also, pop in some stuff from uh, live shooting from our live courses that we have. So if you guys are want a little bit more instruction with your manual therapy and things like that, uh, check out that we're having a Black Friday special, I forget, like 35% off, I think. And then uh, what's really starting to take off now is our mentorship program, um, where you get to pick uh, myself, Jeremy, and Dr. Kyle Feldman's brains, uh, basically on a daily basis with our discussion thread and discussion board we have. We also have bi-monthly calls, uh, over 600 fellowship level articles that have kind of been vetted and, and read by uh, you know, us here at the higher level. Uh, a ton of other resources there. So any questions on that or interest, please reach out to Jeremy or I. We'd be happy to help uh, answer any questions uh, and get you rolling on the mentorship side, I guess. So other than that, All that's good. it. All right, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Yep. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks Cheers. for uh, coming on the show, Steve. And we're definitely going to have you on uh, probably two more times 
um, at least, if not more. And I have a feeling we're going to start working together a lot more um, in the education realm, Steve. So looking forward to it, man. I look forward to it too. Yes, thank you. I like all the, yes, the offerings that you guys do and you're taking over the education world as, as you should. Try. There we go. All right. Thanks, Steve. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Thank you.